Osquim territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. I'm your host, Jake Clark, and we have a special interview to kick off the show. Today, we have uh, Professor Norman Cornett, formerly of McGill University, sitting right across from me right now, here to talk about, well, quite a lot of things, love, God, relationships, the universe, and uh, the interesting state of things right now. Uh, Given the fact that the Arts Report has kind of become a bit of a freelance theology podcast recently, um, we have some very interesting areas of discipline in play here. And I, I've really thought about this because you're the study, yeah, because Professor Cornett, you're the subject of a very interesting documentary, mm-hmm. which is available for free to our listeners uh, online by Alanis Obamasoan. Am, am I saying her name correctly? Mm-hmm. Uh, called Professor Norman Cornett. And that documentary begins with your class at McGill University singing Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, Part One, <laughs> as uh, sort of a encapsulation and introduction to your style of education, which has been described as dialogic. Can uh-huh. you sort of unpack that for us? Can you let us know the gravity of that? Certainly. Um, I'm describe it as dialogic. In fact, um, I'm referencing here the Soviet literary critic Mikhail Bakhtin, um, who in his research in literature, what happens when we read a text, what goes through our mind, um, and this was published by the University of Texas Press, an English translation, and the title of the monograph is The Dialogic Imagination. So I took this seed and I developed it into a philosophy of education, which essentially seeks to create a dialogue between the imagination of the professor and the imagination of the student. And that is communicated primarily through art in this instance? Well, good question, Mr. Clark. I consider the arts the axis of education. Uh, why? Why? Because what distinguishes Homo sapiens from all other species on the planet? Creativity. And the arts constitute the manifestation of creative thinking and creative expression. And job one in learning, also known technically as cognitive acquisition, is to learn to think for ourselves. So I believe that the goal of education goes far beyond a quiz, a midterm, a final, an essay, an exam, a grade, or even a diploma. Uh, In fact, um, Mr. Clark, I believe education is learning to live. How then shall we live as informed citizens? So, pretty minor statement of purpose, really. (laughs) (laughs) It's a small expectation to be had from it. Well, yeah. um, Why would we aim for anything less than life-changing experiences in the university classroom. You see, I I find that to be a really interesting approach because I think a large amount of education is packaged and is presented to people as um, a stepping stone, but strangely a detached one. You've spoken, uh, your your phrase for this, I believe, would be intellectual sclerosis is a term I've heard you use. Yes. At Uh times, and it's this sclero, that's a very interesting term for it because it is this sort of stiffening 
mm-hmm. I do think, and systematizing of things that I- in many ways do not benefit from this or even practically do not stand in this respect. And I was wondering, for people who may be feeling this, what um, you would consider an example of it and what you'd consider an anecdote. An- well, antidote. <laughs> what I've noticed again and again, Mr. Clark, in the university classroom is the fear factor. The fear, first of all, of asking a quote-unquote stupid question. And so the operative principle of my dialogic philosophy of education is this. The only wrong question is the unasked question. So when we create a non-threatening educational environment, we can begin to question. And that is the start of all education, questioning and curiosity. What, what do you see as perhaps threatening in the educational environment? What's a, an indicator of that? Well, uh, what I notice with, with my students is the... the what is the right answer and to get it perfect and to get it just right and how do I get an A and how do I make sure I'm going to get a letter of reference for grad school, for law school, for med school. And this angst, as the German expression puts it, this this sense that uh, I'm going to make a false step. When education, particularly higher education, should prove the most life-affirming experience in a person's existence. I really hope that's been heard, by the way, for for our listeners. I, I don't think I've ever heard a swelling in endorsement, including from the multiple UBC representatives we've had in this institution. Now, I, I'm sorry I, I neglected to introduce her at the beginning, but we've also been joined in the studio by Linda Naiman. Yes, I just got the pronunciation correct. I'm sorry. The, the occasional tip of the slung happens. Oh, God damn it. You got it right. <laughs> there, there we are. Uh, you're also in studio with us here, and you have a, a sort of interesting perspective on this as well, being as your field is also related to creativity and to self-expression. Yes, and education. Yes. And so, yes, yeah, so I call, what I, I call what I do corporate alchemy. And, uh, and so I use the arts as a catalyst to help people in business and government learn about creativity, leadership, and innovation. So I just wanted to um, add, add to, you, to the comment that you made about the, getting that right answer and we've been ingrained in this industrial style educational model to, to look for that right answer as if there's only one answer. And so one of, one of the gifts that the arts teaches us is that there's more than one right answer. And, and I we supp- forget that. Yeah. Well. We don't even know it. I, I feel that that's kind. That's often indicated indicated too in the discourse around uh, these issues because there's well, I think one of the words that is most commonly used to describe discourse is polarizing, mm-hmm. and there's a certain tendency towards that. And uh, we actually uh, reviewed Pacific Theater's production of A Prayer for Owen Meany. Mm-hmm. 
uh, very recently. And uh, the eponymous character of that gives a very interesting speech on oversimplification. Uh, and we had, I believe we did go into it in some detail, but there's something about that. There's, because systematization very much is an, an aspect of oversimplification, or more properly, vice versa, I would say. And one person we were directed towards before this by a friend of ours was, um, among others, George Grant, who I, I know from Lament for a Nation, but there's, uh, he apparently wrote quite a bit on technology. And one question I wanted to ask, and I would like to ask this question to both of you, is uh, how you see the role of technology in this. Because, uh, Professor Cornett, I'm told that you instructed your students to write longhand in, in class, but at mm -hmm. the same time you've also uh, referred to video games as mm -hmm. uh, interesting exercises in mm -hmm. this light. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the first is um, you mentioned, uh, Mr. Clark, oversimplification. Yeah. I believe there is a clear and present danger in higher education towards reductionism, reducing learning to reading and regurgitating, when in actual fact we are full-orbed sensory beings. So rather than reducing cognitive acquisition, which is the technical expression for learning, rather than reducing it to reading and regurgitation, why don't we em em employ the full gamut of sensory perception? Uh, here I'm in dialogue with John Locke, uh, the 17th century, 1600s, philosopher best known as the founder of empiricism, and the expression that we all know, tabula rasa the blank slate. John Locke argued that every human constitutes a blank slate, and what is written in their mind, on their brain, is done so through sensory perception. So what I do, uh, Mr. Clark, is I conduct experiments in cognitive acquisition through the dialogic workshops uh, that I present. That is to say, I I work a lot with the auditory sense, with the visual sense, with the tactile sense, the sense of touch, even with the olfactory sense, the sense of smell, which incidentally is the second strongest in the human brain. Uh, this explains why I've collaborated with neuroscientists such as Professor V.J. Iyer at Harvard University in the Faculty of Arts and like myself, a graduate of the University of California, Berkeley, why I collaborate with um, other neuroscientists such as Dr. Ivar Mendez, who is one of the, and I'm not exaggerating, one of the world's leading neurosurgeons and incidentally, an internationally renowned sculptor and photographer. And so I asked him, why, why Dr. Mendez, do you continue to pursue the arts when you have a medical mandate? And his response was so bottom line oriented. He says, Professor Cornett, I need to visualize before I go into the operating room. And nothing helps me do that more than the arts, photography and sculpture. So why this long handwriting? First of all, because handwriting is the signature of the soul. And it makes that connection between the head and hand. And we now know, Mr. Clark, and this is a very important for us to face in university education, 
there have been enough generations that have gone by that they skipped handwriting, learning to write cursively in grade school and in high school, and they taught them straight on the keyboard. Lo and behold, neurological studies now demonstrate that by skipping that, they left entire realms of the human brain unexplored, unemployed, unused. They have never developed these neurological functions. We incidentally know that that is the, the same. Similarly, this is true of music. Music is the only art form that demands both hemispheres of the human brain. That is to say, both logic and imagination. Why is that? Because music is based on mathematics. So what we need to strive for in higher education today is creating that synergy between logic and creativity, between discipline and freedom. Right on. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, to add, and to add to what you're saying, um, when, I, when I work, I work with a lot of people in technology, and I work with Cisco Systems and uh, Dell and so on. So I, I work with engineers who are the leaders in technology. And, uh, and when I immerse them in artistic ways of learning through working with clay or painting or whatever, I am asking them to think with their hands. As you say, the hand is con hands are connected to the eye, but also that's connected to the heart. Mm. And that I think it's the Buddhists who say that our mind is not only in our brain, mm. our our mind is also in our hands. So we have knowing hands. And when we work with our hands, we can access wisdom and knowing that um, may, may escape us if we're only working intellectually. So, and when you ask about technology, I'm, I am not opposed to technology. It's just that there needs to be a balance and we need to remember to connect with our senses and our humanity, to, to, to learn and think with our hands, not just pushing on a keyboard. And if we are going to be future-proof in the workplace and uh, compete with robots and AI, then the only way to do that is through our creativity and our humanity. And so, the, mm -hmm. so, so I, I would argue, and I'm sure you would too, that the arts, um, the, the arts are, are the antidote to, to all the, what ails us in, uh, in technology. And, and it's through remembering who we are as human beings and connecting with the heart and with our empathy that, uh, that we will come up with answers that will um, differentiate us from the world of AI and robotics. I find the language here very interesting because you mentioned Buddhism yes. here. This, uh, and I, I understand that Professor Cornett, you've um, you you in the docu the documentary describes in your coming to Montreal as a practicing Protestant who mm -hmm. uh, became enamored of a Catholic uh, Francophone bishop. I wouldn't say enamored, uh, but interested. Interested. <laughs> a, a mistake of terminology. Um, and 
There is a very interesting uh, sort of look. I've heard a lot of um, perspectives, not on in religion necessarily, but certainly on uh, spirituality and its contingencies, and especially its relationship to mm-hmm. art. And I was wondering if either of you could speak to uh, that role in society now, how that's changed, or, or and or how you personally engage with it. Well, this explains, uh, for me as a religious studies scholar, Mr. Clark, um, hand-in-hand with the discipline is that of morality and of ethics. And so I began to ask myself intellectually, at what point are we, and you use the word polarizing, dichotomizing, divorcing, quote-unquote, the right answer from moral and ethical principles. And in fact, Alanis Obamswin's film, Professor Norman Cornett, the subtitle is, she quotes me, um, in the, uh, you hear me in the university classroom stating this, since when do we divorce the right answer from an honest answer? So I consider the university constitutes the locus classicus for honest intellectual honesty. And to the extent that we create an environment that impels the student to separate out honesty from the right grade, I think we find ourselves in a moral and ethical dilemma, which we must address in higher education. And I'd like to get back. We talk, I talked previously about the fear factor in the university classroom. And you're quite right when you bring up uh, the role of video games. Why do video games catch on so young and so long? Another factor we want to uh, deal with in the university classroom is the fun factor. <laughs> when we're having fun... It, you don't have to whip a dead horse in, in higher education if students are having fun. And so I purposely look for ways that incite, that encourage, that impel, that foster fun in learning. <laughs> so it's interesting because I've heard, you know, there's a lot of anecdotes about, you know, bringing this into these fields, especially I think the one that occurs to me is Richard Feynman. Mm-hmm. who delivered these lectures on physics and these three-hour lectures on mm-hmm. physics. So mm-hmm. very, you know, even very intense, very obviously highly theoretical subject. And he would interrupt them by playing the bongos mm-hmm. because he's, he said, you know, you can't sit for three hours and absorb this much theory and all of it catch on. That's preposterous. But you need to know it. So there needs to be some way to deliver the information. And, and you brought up another point there, Mr. Clark. From pre-K to post-doc, Again and again, I ask myself, first of all, we are spatial temporal beings. We are corporal creatures. I believe in the human spirit. I believe in the soul, but I've never seen any of them outside of a body. So we need to address the, the corporal concerns, needs, desires, as well as those that are intellectual, rational, neurological. To what extent is it normal for any human body to sit passively one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, day in, day out? So I encourage active, proactive, 
participatory education that involves all of the senses and indeed the human body. Every single campus I go on, it's one nation under a groove. I'm looking out your window and I see all these students dancing to the beat. That's right. I believe that's, um, it's not ballroom dance, but outside, for our listeners, outside uh, the window, I believe is, I want to say it's dance foundations. We have quite a few dance clubs that do take this time of year to, uh, I used to be in ballroom dance myself, so we, uh, there was an opening week where we would do the demonstrations here, be free classes. It was quite a lot of fun. And you see, these are the needs that we need to meet in university education. We're not just brains that are in a beaker. <laughs> we are full-orbed creatures with emotions, with bodies, with ideas, with dreams, with feelings. And I work a lot with psychiatrists and psychologists. Job one in education, believe it or not, Mr. Clark, is the same as in psychology. They refer to it as felt needs. To what extent do we meet felt needs in university teaching? And when we don't respond to the felt needs of our students, it results in what I call Teflon teaching. It just, it just slides right off. And how many times have students told me that and I myself did it. You know, if I'm a professor and I consider myself as a professor, an eternal student, I, I pulled an all-nighter. I had to get an A on that exam and I crammed and I just, I just burned the candle at both ends. And once the exam was over, I walked down the room and I forgot that the rest of my life. I never thought about it again. Mr. Clark, to what extent are we engaging in what I term sustainable education when we are teaching something that is left in the recycling bin the second we step off this campus? Well, I think there's something definitely said there, especially considering science education, about the rate of research. I mean, a friend of mine is an engineer, uh, and well, I have a few friends that doesn't narrow it down, but there's Moore's Law, which is the number of microprocessors in a computer doubles every two years, I believe. And that's actually been proved fallacious. It's faster than that at this point. But the upshot of that is that a lot of technology is becoming obsolete, even to the point where if you're an engineering student, what you learn in first year may well simply be inapplicable by fourth because mm -hmm. it's going so fast. Mm -hmm. So because of that, there's this feeling of intense pressure for the credentials because there's also this feeling that the information is worthless. And I can see that happening across other faculties, too, because there's, you know, you want that piece of paper on your wall. Mm -hmm. And that's somewhat, that is somewhat concerning mm -hmm. uh, to the me because... The important thing is to learn how to learn, which yes. is what the liberal arts teaches us. Mm -hmm. how, to, uh, how to ask questions, how to follow your curiosity, how to question assumptions, how to how to uh, explore, let's say, kaleidoscopic thinking. Uh, it's about learning how to learn, learning how to solve problems, learning how to come up with ideas. Because when you have those basic skills, you can apply them to anything. And, and I would, uh, to follow up on Ms. Naiman's point here, which I think is quite uh, on, the, on the dot, um, in a paradigm shift, pedagogically speaking, Mr. Clark, I believe the real key to higher learning is not the answer, but the question. Not the professor talking, 
but the professor listening. To, that's what I call dialogue. So I create a space where instead of it just being me talking and them listening, I came to the conclusion I had to hear their voices. So through the dialogic method that I have developed now over the course of 32 years, in actual fact, I hear them. They don't just hear me. And um, that is where learning takes place in that interstice between the, the, the professor and uh, the student. Apropos of that, there's a scene in the movie, there's a, uh, I believe it's a montage in the movie that discusses uh, your sort of, I believe it's, would nicknaming be a reasonable name? Everybody gives them their own, mm-hmm. in my courses, everybody gives themselves their own name. And why is that? First of all, we're in the age of identity, identity politics. We see this in, uh, in, uh, in a number of realms, whether it be ethnic or it be sexual orientation. Well, One of the greatest gifts we can give in higher education is enabling, encouraging the student to define themselves, to appropriate and articulate their own identity. And I I believe when I say about hearing the students, for me, education is mission accomplished when the student learns, acquires their own voice. How do we give voice to students? How can they learn and discover their voice? I was going to ask, how do you remember the names? (laughs) Um, Well, I'm a historian by training, and um, these are mnemonic devices. Uh, this is one of the reason music, uh, this, I mentioned working with neuroscientists um, and uh, with psychologists. Uh, of course, one of the issues we face with an aging population in Canada, in North America, indeed Western world, is Alzheimer's disease. It's no coincidence that people who, de- who face Alzheimer's, they may forget the names of their own children. Ironically, Mr. Clark, they remember pitch-perfect songs, lullabies that they heard in their infancy. So our brains are hardwired to certain neurological, certain phenomena like music. This is one of the reasons every class I give, music is the cornerstone. Because what we endeavor to do is by music to create a sense of community and at the same time, to have our anthem as a community, and it, and that makes me think that makes me think that of um, or reminds me of of uh, research that I've read that you really don't learn anything unless you have some kind of feeling for it. You, you got to have feel some, it. <laughs> you need to have some kind of emotion, and. I, and I've, I've learned even from my own experience, like if I've been given a, a problem to solve creatively, I'm not creatively unless I care about that particular problem. If I couldn't care less about it, I am not going to be able to sum up any imagination or ideas. So to, inje- to, to infuse music into the learning 
I can see would be a powerful way to evoke emotion and connect and connection. And once because you, get- you want to be able to connect with each other as well, to create that safe space for people to take, as Google puts it, psychological risks. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you can really have you can have candid conversations and really share and and connect and come up with ideas and hmm. original thinking. And I want to underscore what uh, Ms. Naiman is saying here. Uh, the Fifth Dimension had a song that became uh, quite a hit, uh, in which a lyric says, "You've got to feel it." Um, One of the false dichotomies we must address in higher education, I refer, in the name of rationalism, the Enlightenment, and the uh, post-age of reason thought, we came to what I consider a reductionist conclusion that for it to be true, for it to be objective, for it to be the right answer, we have to evacuate the subjective. And more to the point, we have to remove the affective. Well, I invite uh, the listeners of CITR to speak with psychologists, to speak with psychiatrists. The affective dimension is the warp and woof of the human condition, as André Malraux put it in his essay in 1933. So, really... The challenge we have before us is rather than to fall into this trap that it's got to be dry, it's got to be dull, it's got to be, it's got, in order for it to be the right answer, in order for it to be true, in order for it to be higher learning, we have to jettison out the affective dimension. That is a denial of the human condition. We learn also affectively, that is to say, through feelings, through emotions, through sentiments. I really don't think I could give any better justification for an arts and culture. <laughs> I really wish we could go on for a lot longer, but we are obviously running up against our uh, our time limit, and you guys actually have uh, somewhere to be, mm-hmm. which we've mentioned on our last show, but we'll, uh, we can, if you guys will let us know what you got going on, where we can see you, where we can hear more about this, we'd yeah. be thrilled to hear about it. Well, um, it's 6.30 this evening at the Gold Corp a Center for the Arts. Um, I will present a screening discussion of Joyce Borenstein's film, Lita Moser Photographer. It's already an award-winning film, and Joyce Borenstein, ourself, will join us. I invite all the listeners of CITR to consult my website, www.cdedec.com. And how about yours, Ms. Nyman? And I invite listeners to visit my website, which is creativityatwork.com, all one word. All right. And, and, and I, I, my hope is that all students, even if they're studying engineering and any other technology-related program, is to also take liberal arts courses while they're at UBC to ex- broaden their horizons. You heard it, Dash. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a bit of an injury for a friend of mine who listens to the show. All right, it has been fantastic to have you guys in the studio. I wish you, Professor Cornette, I wish you very much. Enjoy your stay in Vancouver, Ms. Newman. It was terrific to have you in. And we shall, so we shall be back momentarily. We're going to take our uh, belated PSA break. Actually, we're going to play some Fifth Dimension. I believe the song is Aquarius. Oh, that's it. You've got to feel it. <laughs> there, there, there it is. 
Here we are. Uh, and we shall be back momentarily with a lot of fun stuff. Oh, uh, before I forget, promos. We have a whole lot of giveaways for you. If you listen to our show last show, that word works. We have the King's Singers. That is this weekend. Henry VIII, I am, I am. I'm not going to play the song again because people have told me not to. Uh, <laughs> we also have a giveaway for the Chan Center's show on Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, who is a... Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Very, very, uh, very interesting show, it appears. We'll have more on that later. That will also be running next week. And we also have a really surprise, uh, sh- a surprise giveaway for Blood on the Dance Floor, which is also, I believe, an SFU production. That is actually tomorrow. So if you would like to see any of these shows, please call in at CITR. That is, um, we've given away our contact number here. But the, ah, the, ah, the. The computer fails me again. And our, uh, so our, uh, our full contact, if you'll excuse the, uh, if you'll excuse the goof, is 604-822-2487. That is 604-822-2487. Please feel free to call during any of our PSA breaks. We'll have a bit of a longer show today, so you'll have some opportunities to do that. I'm Jake Clark, and we'll be back momentarily. Vancouver has a housing problem. Mass evictions. Mass evictions. Unfair rent increases. What happened to rent control and protection from unfair eviction? If these or other housing matters concern you, you may be interested in joining the Vancouver Tenants Union. For more information, visit tenantsunion.ca. good and I've been wanting to find out more about local music. Yeah, I heard about it through CITR and Discorder. What's that? 
Um, it's a radio station. You can review all the music that comes in and help out with touring bands or just do some data entry to get started in their music department. Oh, cool. Yeah, you can just email volunteer at citr.ca and they can help you get into the station or just come in whenever. Well, I'll be there, so... Uh, whenever works. Whenever okay. we are, we are currently live right now. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> With my usual smoothness, we return to the air, and we actually have some wonderful new guests. Here is Eli and Hannah from UBC Slam. N- not quite Hannah. This is Molly. <laughs> Molly. <laughs> you were a few letters off. Have I got? I've gone that wrong before. I am so sorry, Molly. <laughs> I, I get hit in the head very frequently, and apparently I scramble the words. Uh, so that's a great start. How are you guys doing? And you're here to talk to us about a chapbook. Yeah, yeah, we're super excited for it. This is our fourth annual chapbook. We do one every year, and it's basically um, it's basically a way to let uh, poets um, and writers showcase their growth throughout the year, right? We have a lot of uh, community members in UBC Slam, and so... They, you know, they're writing poems, they're sharing different versions, you know, throughout the workshops that we host and, you know, performing them at the slams that we have biweekly. And so this is kind of a way just to get their thing in like a published UBC end of the year um, style chapbook. Now, the last chapbook was called The Year We Became. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember because I believe I was in that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think you've been in the last couple maybe actually. There was, that, that was it. I, don't, I wasn't okay. in the one before okay. that. Um, and... Uh, the chapbooks, for those who uh, who probably who might never have come across them before, what can they expect within? Like, what what sort of poems does one see in this? Um, I mean, so I mean, it's from it's from community members, you know, and it's from UBC writers. So I mean, you see you see everything across the spectrum, right? You see you see love poems, you see things just talking about um, Vancouver and the, you know, campus environment. You see people talking, you know, speaking about things such as like the LGBTQ community that they belong to, you know, all, all sorts of things. A lot of things that you would see, a lot of the same types of subjects you would see come up in slam poetry. They've just kind of been, ref- you know, a lot of writers will kind of refine it and make it more towards the page. It's also a nice spot for a lot of our people are in slam, but they also prefer written, and it's kind of a different format, so it's nice to have both in our community. Yeah, absolutely. For those who've never been to a poetry slam before, could you sort of explain the difference between written poetry and sort of slam poetry? Uh, Yeah, um, slam poetry um, can take on, I mean, slam poetry is essentially just poetry that is performed for an audience alive, right? So there's no props or musical accompaniment or anything like that, and it's usually got a pretty strict time limit. Uh, The thing that kind of makes slam poetry what it is is really that it's judged by random audience members um, that are found um, at the beginning of the night. So the basically the culture of that really allows the audience to become engaged and very much a part of the type of things that they want to hear and so it really slam poetry a lot of the subject matter is very tied to serving the community um, and what the community needs at the time there's a pin I don't know if you guys still have it but it's like 6.5 out of 10 I am fabulous uh, I don't actually remember that call. No. Out. We have a lot of chants and weird, almost cultish things you could maybe say that we we like to call out to you know keep everybody riled up and engaged. I don't remember that one though. There's 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 a few of them. There's been some interesting things on the pins. Uh, as um, at least I'll get a poem out of this. At least I'll get yep. a poem out of this one. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There's that. 
Well, there's, you know, there's, you, you hear some really interesting and also some really beautiful and even some some really dark things yes, uh, absolutely, at a given yeah. slam. There's a very interesting confessional element to it. Oh, absolutely, yes. I would say, and that's, well, at least in the chapel guy was indefinitely quite present there as well, but a different way. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 would you say that there's an inherent difficulty in putting slam poetry on a page, or would you say that there is a continuum? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it. They're not this. There's not. They're not the same thing, right? So you. I feel like everybody probably uh, should approach it differently, but in their own way. Um, like Molly was saying, it's just it really gives writers, um, especially like whenever a lot of our uh, UBC Slam members have been doing a lot of live stuff, it really gives you a chance to hone your craft in a different way. You know, I think you have to be a lot more sparse with the words that you use when you're putting them on a page. I think uh, how I think uh, I think you have to be a lot more conservative uh, and wary of like the space that you have when you're looking at a page poem versus doing something live. You have to be more conscious of the visual element of yeah, it. Yeah, whereas when you're doing something live, it's more about rhythm and repetition and uh, saying things that are able to catch the listener's ear and then intertwining that with playful and you know intelligent language, right? And on the page, line breaks are very intentional and you almost have to like line breaks on the page are like a poet's voice in slam Mm -hmm. that typical slam voice is translates that way it's interesting that you mention this because i've heard a lot about poet voice Mm -hmm. uh, especially in in reading Uh, especially uh, i think i heard this because poetry has an interesting role i think now because the 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 thing i've said before on the show is that uh Rupi Kaur, who's somebody who, lover or hater, everyone has an opinion. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, like, she's famous. Like, she is Ariana Grande's Twitter feed famous. Sam Smith's arm famous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was chatting with Jimmy Kimmel Very famous. much took over the kind of Instagram poet model. Yeah. Yeah, and I've, I've since seen a lot of articles on that, and I'm wondering sort of how that climate features in Slam and how that maybe, how you guys maybe see that developing. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, slam definitely does, uh, you know, slam as a just like a genre, as a, that it's become the way, to, the way it's kind of exploded into its own genre, has definitely kind of caught certain uh, stereotypical voices and stuff like that, stereotypical ways to uh, kind of, you know, pause or, you know, that slam poetry voice mm-hmm. uh, they always talk about. Um, I think UBC, uh, the UBC actually put out an article with a Van. Uh, like a Vancouver Poetry Slam member, Leslie, Leslie Stark, I think. And uh, they actually like kind of did some actual studies and kind of really dived into that, uh, figuring out where that kind of slam poetry voice comes from. Huh. I yeah. think we're aware of it, though, and sometimes. Yeah, you know, it, it's I think it's, you know, everything, all, all genres, I feel like, end up having their own kind of uh styles and cliches that people kind of gravitate to especially younger members right are new members right they kind of get influenced by these things that are ubiquitous within the genre and then uh so those kind of rhythms and kind of that slam poetry voice that very drawn out over enunciated style um you kind of get attached to it and it's the first thing you're hearing all the time and then once you become a little bit more skillful with the language and how to play with sound i think a lot of poets um, really try to break that, break those kind of uh, just you know common things that we kind of stick to, and try and try to like break it, but break it in ways that kind of still like appease the listener's ear, right? It's a bizarrely unpredictable art form, yeah, in in a lot of ways. I think it's interesting because poetry often becomes something that couldn't be called anything else. 
There's a, yeah, there's, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of ways to look at that because poetry can be anything, but also c- can be com- can come from anything, but it also can't be anything else. A lot of things are poetry, in, in right? I mean, yeah. you know, most most music and lot lots of types of art are poetry, right? And then we we call poetry this things that's just kind of. I mean, it becomes broader and broader as it goes on, but yeah. Poetry kind of becomes this blanket term for a lot of things. Well, we get there. Less this, less this sound uh, like William F. Buckley interviewing Allen Ginsberg. How can we uh, submit to the chapbook yes. this time around? Uh, Molly, do you want to give details yeah. for that? Yeah, so our date to apply by is February 15th, and you just need to submit your bio and picture when you submit your poem. Uh, it can be two poems on two pages or up to a two-page poem. Um we are also looking for artists, so you get paid $50 if you're voted for our art page. All you have to do is have the title, which, by the way, is First Draft Epitaph, and UBC Slam Poetry underneath it. There's been some beautiful art for the for these. Uh, in the yeah, past. yeah, we always get great. Yeah, we always get great artists. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, if you need any more information, just go to UBC Slam Poetry on Facebook, or if you mm-hmm. just want to submit right away, it's UBC Slam Poetry at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Awesome, UBC Slam on Facebook and Gmail. Mm-hmm. Check them out. Uh, Molly, Eli, it's been great to have you in the studio. Thank you so much, Jake. Uh, I'm sorry about any malaprops that have went ha- that have gone on. <laughs> no, and it's all good. We'll probably see at the next slam, which yeah, actually, just absolutely. a quick plug for that is next Wednesday. It's next Wednesday, right after our show. Yeah, and yeah. just to talk about that, just for a second, uh, that next slam is actually going to be your SIPS qualifier. So if you're a slam poet and haven't come out to UBC Slam very often, um, we actually are hosting a qualifier for the Canadian Individual Poetry Slam on February 13th. And so you can come out and try out and be, if you win that slam, you'd be the representative for that competition in April, which would be pretty cool. cool. Yeah. All right. It was awesome to have you in the studio. Thank you so much, Jake. Check that out. Check out the chapbook. Now, we got to take another quick PSA break, uh, but we'll be back with some awesome reviews of the film Rafiki, which was showing at the Van City Theater uh, for Black History Month, and for the arts clubs, The Matchmaker, which, well, is, is, is just one of my favorite plays ever. Uh, this has been The Arts Report. I'm still Jake Clark, and we'll be back after these messages. Do you like the sound of your own voice? Are you a student that has a lot to say about the University of British Columbia? If so, there is a place for you. The UBC Affairs Collective is a brand new collective at CITR 101.9 FM that brings students together to cover campus news, including research developments, arts and culture, live discussions, and lots more. The Collective produces a weekly radio show, the UBC Happy Hour, that airs every Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. You can find all the episodes podcasted online at citr.ca. Send an email to ubcaffairs at citr.ca if you'd like to get involved. No prior radio experience is necessary. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theatre, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. Well, if you're going to walk on ice, you may as well dance. We're back! 
This is the Arts <laughs> Report. I'm still Jake Clark, and I am joined by a network of wonderful correspondents, Leah Siegel, Margarita Galber, and, of course, a new gentleman that is Will Alvarez. And we are here to talk about a panoply of things. It's going to be very fun. Um, and Leah, uh, we, let's start with you. You went to see The Matchmaker. Yeah. Um, by Thornton Wilder. By Thornton Wilder. Uh, that's happening at the Arts Club right now. Um, and I, uh, Jake, I know that you love The Matchmaker, but I, yeah, <laughs> but this but, is. But, oh, I was just going to say that um, I have only seen uh, Skin of Our Teeth and. Our town before, so this is. Uh, I, I wasn't familiar with the matchmaker, but um, uh, this. I had to say, this is like one of the most fun shows. The mo- one of the most fun I've had in the theater in months. Um, it was um, uh, basically it's like this farce. Um, uh, there's this rich guy who uh, wants to get married. Mr. Vandergelder. Mr. Vandergelder. Yeah. Um, uh, and his idea of a wife is essentially an unpaid housekeeper. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so he hires um, Dolly Levi, who uh, is the local matchmaker, uh, to find him a wife. But it's uh, secretly her desire to be married to him. Uh Mm-hmm. Basically for his money, <laughs> but yeah. you know, for uh, because she wants to spread like you know she wants to make the world a better place. She's like, I'll I'll, I'll spend his money and do good things with it. Um, but he also has a niece named Ermengarde, whose name I couldn't get over because whenever I heard her name, I kept thinking of the Ermengarde. Yeah, I was gonna meme. say did you? <laughs> it's it's one of those names like Gertrude. It hasn't aged. It hasn't. I I would well. say it's aged worse than Gertrude. That's that's difficult. But um, you know, there's a there's a whole host of other characters. Um, there there's uh, you know, I I've never seen it before. So what I can say in this production is that it had tons of physical comedy, and the audience um at the show I went to was just eating it up. Um, and uh, you could tell that the actors really fed off of that. Um, so that was really fun to witness. Um, uh, I, there's also, um, I, I think what stole the show for me is in the last act, uh, there's, uh, a character named Miss Flora Van Huysen or something like that. Yeah, they've got the very, the, the, the New York Dutch names a lot. (laughs) Yeah, that I, I struggle a bit with. Um, but, uh, she is, um... This uh, you know spinster character, like, um, and uh, I I, th- I think like uh, so she's played by um, actress Nora McClellan, and I think like the direction that she was given for this was like basically like take it to ten, <laughs> like don't you know just make everything as exaggerated as possible. Raul Julia from Street Fighter. Yeah, I, I, maybe I haven't seen that, but... Um, Trust me on this one. So, and, like, she, like, comes in singing... This, how she's introduced is her, she just sings opera, and, like, she's not a, an opera singer, right? She just has that confidence, like, like that dramatic... Uh, stage presence that was fantastic to watch. Um, So, yeah, I'm not sure if that's um, something that uh, is typical in other productions, but she just, like, absolutely killed it. 
And this is now just to just to get to the meat of it. Yes. This is this production will be going on for how long? And would you recommend people seeing it? Um, it goes until February twenty fourth. It's at the Stanley uh, stage. Um, Stanley on... Industrial Alliance. That's right. Yes. That's uh, actually pretty close to Pacific. Hmm. Uh, and I yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. I one hundred percent would recommend it. I had so much fun. It's there's a really great line uh, towards the end. Not to, it doesn't really spoil anything saying it, but it's the, there's a difference between a lot of money, a little money, and no money. Mm. And the difference between a lot of money and a little money isn't that big. The difference between a little money and no money is enormous. Mm. And that's I think there's a lot of truth in that. Mm. Uh, for anybody approaching fourth year, there is a <laughs> uh, a distinct truth in that that I will perhaps leave unsaid. Yeah, that got too real. Will, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How yeah. are you? Move a little closer to the microphone there. Come on, let, let us let us know who you are. So this is your first time on the show. That's right, yes. And you saw Rafiki. Yeah. As, y- am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah, that's how they said it in the in the movie, so I, Groovy. I, yeah, I think so. <laughs> can you tell can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the movie was about two girls from um from Kenya who fell in love with each other and it pretty much just followed their romantic relationship throughout the movie and what they uh, went through as two queer individuals in um, Kenya, which uh, is a country in Africa that doesn't um, generally accept um, any type of sexuality or lifestyle that isn't uh, um, cisgender and heterosexual. Mm -hmm. So it was very, um, it was a very excellent film. The movie, the music was amazing. The dialogue and the characters were all very relatable and real. And, um, yeah, I think it was a great topic to have during Black History Month, namely addressing uh, queer black lives and the troubles that they face, not only in um, uh, close to us in North America, but also in different countries where they have different uh, standards to face in their respective countries. Now, in terms of that, I, I have to imagine that most people are not familiar with African film. And is this the first African film you've seen? This is, yes. Now, as someone new to that and as someone who... For those who are maybe not immersed in African culture, is there a bit of a culture shock, or does the media make it familiar? I think there there is a sense of a culture shock, but it's not so much that um, you feel alienated away from the movie and such that you can't relate to the characters. I think it's more that they um, expose the culture to you in a way that um, shows its beauty, its charm, and, of course, all the... Um, the troubles that queer people can face in those and that given culture, but I think that um, it, it's the, the the film was made in such a way that anyone can relate to it. I would think. That's and would you say that this sort of queer storytelling kind of harkens to that? That there's this universal there's this universality in that emotion. I think so for sure. Yeah. That's very interesting. And this is actually part of um, some programming that Van City is trotting out for Black History Month, which looked like some very amazing programming. Uh, other examples of that, were there any trailers before this movie? There were, yeah, I think they're all up on YouTube right now as well. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're right here. We have the list right here. I think one that's quite relevant is Don't Be Nice, uh, which is on February 12th, that's next Tuesday at 6.30, which is about a team of New York City slam poets uh, competing for the national championship during summer 2016. I did not plan this. That's just that's just there. Um, another one which I've uh, actually heard is quite good is uh, Sankofa plus Afrofuturist Shorts, which is about a model 
uh, a current uh, in current year transported back in time and caught up in a slave cargo going for the new world. So I imagine that's a feel good movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm not even gonna make a joke about that. <laughs> I, I did, yes, I'm, I am, I'm awful. Um, and then another, uh, actually, another one though that I am told is incredibly interesting and funny is Black Klansman. And it's very interesting because Rafiki has actually been compared to the early cinema of Spike Lee, apparently. And this is Spike Lee's latest feature. Um, Now, I haven't seen this, but I'm told there is a very fascinating scene over the phone um, that uh, occurs here. And uh, really, the the press copy for this says it all is that Spike Lee is at his spikiest with this truish story of an African-American cop, Ron Stallworth, played by John David Washington, going undercover to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan in the early 70s. I don't know what doesn't sell people on that. You know, that seems kind of amazing. Yeah, that's, there's interesting. There's a lot of interesting things in play there. Honestly, um, kind of one of the things that works in the opposite direction here. I've got. I'm going to touch on this really briefly. Um, I actually went to the Comedy Shocker at the Rickshaw for the first time recently, and. For those familiar, the Comedy Shocker is a show the Rickshaw runs. I believe it is a weekly show. Uh, And you can guess what the content is. Now, I was actually really excited for this because it was hosted by a man named Mark Hughes, uh, who was a comedian who did the Fringe show. I finally nailed it. Tragedy versus Time Served. Tragedy plus Time Served, excuse me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good title. It was a good show. Uh, It was a comedy show, but it was also... A story, frankly, about drug addiction and sexual abuse. He suffered a lot. He went through quite a few things. And the show, I thought, was very interesting. And uh, his comedy touches on his having been a junkie for a significant period of his life. And he's able to really pull this incredibly dark humor out of it. And I attended the show, um, not, not alone, actually, but I attended the show and... The, the thing is that the, the, the shocker's point uh, is one that I think is belabored, but there are when people have this perspective, I, I can to an extent see why, is there's a concern about political correctness. And when you have a show where they're like, we are not PC, there's a lot of people who are going to hear that and go, we don't have to dog whistle. And that's what this really was, uh, especially from Mark. And it was really very unfortunate to me because the humor in the show was, I would say, very cheap shock humor. And mm-hmm. it was really, uh, one thing I will say, I don't know if the show is characteristic, but it really did not reflect very well on the venue, on the organization, or even on the comics in it. Um, and I, I just do, I do want to say this, that it was very disappointing uh, to me. And it was something that I would honestly say is indicative of a bigger problem that goes on in terms of comedy and in terms of organization. Hmm. If you still want to go to the rickshaw, however, uh, the rickshaw is actually a music venue most of the time. And uh, I think that might be part of it. There's a very intimidating cast to it with these big screens. It had a really unfortunate rallyish thing. The MAGA <laughs> apparel did not help. Uh, yeah, there was so some of that in the audience. wasn't keen on that, but you know, you want to wear a stupid hat, you wear a stupid hat. Um, the uh, 
they're, the toasters are coming, uh, and I quite like the toasters. Uh, well, actually, I like one of their songs, which I'm pulling up right now, which is called Don't Let the Bastards Grind You Down. Huh. Uh, it's from Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. Bastard is non comborundum, yeah. That's, that's actually a phrase I've heard attributed to a lot of people, but, you know, yeah, let's give, her, give it a Handmaid's Tale in this, in this instance, <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, there were, there were things going on there that it really could have been better, I do want to say. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not a, a pencilnik about this, but I've, I've said before that I don't feel that PC is the oppressive force people have made it out to be because that would give it an, an effectuality. Mm-hmm. Um, that is more than suggestions. And I think here it really jumped the line into bad form out of laziness and provocativity. And that, you know, it's fine when you're Jonathan Swift, when you're Lenny Bruce, when you're aiming at something. When you're just lashing out, it seems lazy. And that's all I really have to say about that. I just probably said too much already. So without further ado, here's the toasters who you can check out there at the rickshaw. That'll be on the 16th. Uh, and if you're interested in our ticket giveaways, by the way, that is for that is for Gwendolyn Brooks. That is for... Let me pull up some further information on that to elaborate. That is for... <clears throat> Pardon me? Uh, Marguerite, would you mind grabbing the microphone there? Oh, sorry. What? Technical difficulties, ladies and gentlemen. Blood on the dance floor. Yeah, that's right. Blood on the dance floor. That'll Ooh. be coming up uh, tomorrow. That'll be coming up tomorrow. So if you want to take us to that, please do call in. Please do call in. Our number is 604-822-2478. That is 604-822-2478. Uh, stuttered a little bit there. I'll be right back to close out the show with some shout-outs and an interview. Uh from you, Margarita, about La Boheme, which I'm just going to say looks kind of amazing. I think it it is going to be amazing. Enjoy some ska music. We'll be right back.
YouTube. Uh, yeah, that was the toasters. Uh, yeah, things happen. Let's talk about rent. Let's talk about La Boheme. Same thing, right? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, now, the first time I heard about this, I was really psyched about this because that's probably my favorite opera. It's certainly the one I like listening to the most. Mm. So there is a production going on as we speak. Indeed. Could you tell us where and when that is? <laughs> So it's a Vancouver opera. It starts February 14th, which is next week. And next week, we're going to run the interview that I did with uh, Renan, yep. the director of the opera. Mm-hmm. Also, I want to tell you guys that there is a really nice promotion of 40 under 40. So if you're under 40 years old, which I think all of us are, you can get a ticket for $40, which is very, very affordable for an opera. And actually kind of what I paid for seeing Mo, so even less so it's a pretty good deal. When did you see Mo? Tell us about that. I saw her on a Commodore, and oh my God, she's so amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the promotion is running uh, on 14th of February, 19th, and 21. So if you want to go check out La Boheme for just $40, do that. Uh, so it's opening night, 14th, 19th, and 21, and the opera is running for a few days more. And I can tell you, visiting there, that it looks like they're doing an amazing job. Um, Spoiling a little bit uh, of the interview when I asked the director, so what's unique about your version? He said, what's unique about it is that I'm following the score. I'm actually doing it the way it was written by Puccini. And they don't normally do that? No, he said that, um, well, I don't want to spoil too much. <laughs> you should tune in for the interview next week. Uh, he's a really inspiring guy. I was really inspired by talking to him. Uh, so check it out, La Boheme. And what do you want to say about Rent? Well, uh, so Rent is based on La Boheme. Uh, it, that's true. You got Mimi. There are interesting changes. To, well, there's they sub out TB for AIDS, essentially, in yeah. Rent, among other things. Because Rent, so for those unfamiliar, we've talked about this on the show, I think, before. I don't know about us, but when I was on the show earlier, we, we had a conversation about Rent at one point. And uh, I remember this. I have mixed feelings about Rent. <laughs> also the musical. But, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I, live in, I live in Vancouver. Yes, yes, uh, laughter concealing real pain. But um, the musical, I'm told, like, the musical had really had an interesting life, which I think is now happening with Hamilton, too, is that when it came out, everybody's a fan. Then there's, like, some people, like, eh, not sure about it. Then huge backlash. Also, there were, like, versions with casts, right? There were different actors, and then 
they had to get into bigger shoes or smaller shoes. There was like the original cast, the new cast. I remember that the, the movie Broadway. used the original cast, uh, who most of the original cast in the yeah, movie. Who but are, then, like when you see when you see the ones that are not as good as the ones that you loved, you're like, mm, well, it's like they it's are like not cringe. in their twenties. <laughs> do you know also what I that. do you know what I learned about Rent the other day? What the um, guy who wrote it, um, he died. Yeah. J- the same day. Did what? he die? It, um, it started on Broadway. What? Yeah, it's did he? Day. I I remember. Did he? I is it like urban legend or is it real? <laughs> uh, no, I think I like looked up Rent recently, and that's that's the thing that I do remember something like that. I do remember something tragic like that yeah. about the screenplay. Writer. And he was like a young guy. Well, it was, was was it AIDS? Because there was well, oh, to I don't think it was AIDS. I think it was something else. Like I, I don't because I, I was it TB. Oh, that would be oh, ironic. that would be that would be, be cruel like irony. Around. Yeah. Uh, like the thing about the the musical Rent, I've got to say, is that I I didn't really latch onto the songs to it at all. What? Um, no, I, I what didn't. What is wrong with you? No, I, I I didn't, and I um I'll I'll kind of defend this because I uh, the thing about musicals is that a lot of them I like kind of run through me a little bit because the songs from a musical um, you can usually have independent of the musical and they're mm-hmm. fine and I like that that's one thing I like about musical songwriting in that they assemble the songs along a theme and there's a thing about Rent is that whenever I listen to the soundtrack on itself it just sounds incredibly snotty to mm-hmm. me there are some songs about it that just to me especially La Vie Bohème really has to me like um um <laughs> I don't know. I just remember in the movie a really triumphant Rosario Dawson going, Eating disorders! And I'm like, is that a woo <laughs> moment? <laughs> I, I'm not feeling woo here. Well, it's different, right? It doesn't really go along the PC lines, as you said earlier. No, but I mean, that's that's not a... That's I, like, do, I do like the songs for men. I can listen to like, them separately. But I don't know if I would listen to them, like, all of them consecutively yeah, in a soundtrack. Maybe not. But I can totally check them out. And I have a lot separately. 520, the, the, how do you measure a year? That one's catchy. Yeah, it's nice. That one's... Would you like light my candle? That was, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's also that's also Level Hem, too, which is... That's actually an interesting use in Rent, because she's lighting the candle to uh, cook up H. Yeah, that's true. But yeah. also Mimi in, in La Bohème, which is how we started this conversation. Yeah. She also needs a light for a candle. She does, yeah. Yeah, that's how it goes. It's an interesting difference, I think, between the two characters. There's something that could be really, there's a lot of... Well, di- one's a stripper and one is not. That's, yeah. That's, you know. Well, uh, do we want to spoil La Bohème? Uh, no, let's not. No, okay, so but there is the, the ending really is the critical difference between the two because uh, it goes a real different way. True. In rent, I, I'll I'll say about that. I, there's like, um, who is it who directed Rent the movie? It was Chris Columbus. Yeah, it was. I'm the, raising my hands up. He directed the first three <laughs> Harry know. Potter movies, I think. Oh yeah? yeah. Yeah. Interesting choice to direct Rent, I will say. Um, you don't see overlap between them, Harry Potter. And, no, I'm joking. <laughs> you know, the movement. Yeah, I could see something. I would I would say check out Tumblr, but their content rules changed so but you know when i think of run i don't think about the i don't think about the movie i think about the broadway about the broadway thing yeah speaking of i he did die the um guy who wrote it uh john jonathan larson he died unexpectedly the morning of rent's first preview performance off broadway and he severed he suffered an aortic 
dissection. No, dissection. Oh, goodness. Aortic dissection. So yes. he ruptured one of his aortas. Yeah. Oh, oh my dear. God. That's a brutal way to go. That's, <laughs> that's not like, that's like re- reach down to tie his shoes and then blown gasket. Jesus. Yeah. No. Well, at least he accomplished something in his life. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's that's a horrifying thing. Things like that. Like, that's kind of like a brain aneurysm. Those just happen really suddenly, and then that's it's that's kind of the terrifying thing about them. We got to a dark point in the show. So Sorry. fast, though. So fast. <laughs> so incredibly fast. Um, La Bohème, though, is a beautiful opera, and there's – do we let's – the 40 under 40 tickets, I really do want to kind of – Yeah, that's a great promotion. I'm trying to harp on here again just to be clear for that. So, so it's the 14th, 19th, and 21. It's not for all the dates the opera is playing. Mm-hmm. Check it out on their website. Yep. Just search for Vancouver Opera, La Bohème. Yep, that's awesome. La Vie Bohème! <laughs> Sorry to anybody listening on headphones. Wow, that was really impressive. Bravo. <laughs> There's, again, the opera really is. I remember the um, the Bard on the Beach opera did the arias, um, did, did uh, La Bohème. It was really lovely. It was one of the lighter ones from it. Uh, it was really lovely. Yeah. Um, it's cool. Happy Bohem! Okay, okay, I'll stop now. (laughs) This has been the Arts Report coming at you for a little bit of a long episode. I'm your host, Jake Clark. I'm Leah Siegel. Margarita. Will Alvarez. And it has been lovely sharing this hour plus with you. Uh, We'll be back next week with this fantastic interview uh, on La Bohem, among other things. Uh, And, well, cheers. Wrong button. Have you ever thought about going abroad to study, work, intern, or learn a language? Mark Thursday, February 28th, your calendar, and get down to the Vancouver Convention Center, East Building, to find out how. All the experts under one roof, top universities, gap year specialists, and student travel organizations. This is a feature seminar on scholarships that starts at 1 p.m. and the expo opens at 2 p.m. Admission is free. Check it out online at www.studyandgoabroad.com for more info. So I'm sitting here with Renaud Dessin, the director of Vancouver Opera's La Bohème. Puccini, can I say it's the most famous opera? Puccini's One most of famous? the most famous opera. I think Turandot, Butterfly, also the very... Yeah, uh, Madame Butterfly. Exactly. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. I just saw you for two seconds in there. About myself? Oh my yeah. God. Um, I'm originally French, then I moved to Canada 25 years ago. Oh wow. And uh, I became a Canadian citizen. And uh, now uh, we're living in Venice. Nice. In Italy. Yes. That's fun. But now you're here directing 